Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher here at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to James chapter 5. We've mentioned several times now that James seems mostly concerned to expound upon the nature of real faith. He is very aware that there were people in the church who believed true and orthodox things about God and who were very excited about Jesus being the Messiah, but who nevertheless did not seem to be living as a saved person ought to live. And so the emphasis throughout this letter has been on right behaving as opposed to merely right believing. Here in this final chapter, James seems to be circling around back to where he began. He began in chapter 1 by talking about the perspective on wealth that is characteristic of the truly saved person. He went on to talk about faith and endurance and how we must conduct ourselves while we wait for the return of the Lord and while we wade through significant difficulties here on earth. He also introduced the idea of bridling the tongue. And here we see that emphasis as well as he speaks about truth in the public square and righteous prayer within the company of believers. James ends his letter with a call for us to gather in those who are straying as opposed to merely pelting them with judgment and vitriol and thus knocking them the whole way out of the kingdom of God. Once again, we are amazed at how directly this letter seems to be speaking to issues that are live and current in the church today. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Come now, you rich, and weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Commentators debate among themselves as to who exactly is being addressed by these verses. Is James addressing rich Christians? If so, we're a little surprised by that because we don't think of the early church as having too many rich believers among their ranks. We know they had some, but we're led to understand that by and large, the early converts to Christianity came mostly from among the poor and working class. Thus, many others say that James is functioning here rather like an Old Testament prophet. Old Testament prophets regularly addressed the rich and powerful, even though they knew very well that the rich and powerful were not among their hearers. Still, they thundered against their abuses. Isaiah 23, for example, has the prophet saying, Wail, O ships of Tarshish. He says in verse 2, Be still, O inhabitants of the coast, the merchants of Sidon who cross the sea have filled you. Isaiah is speaking there to powerful and rich people who don't even belong to the covenant community and would almost certainly have never heard a single word of his declaration. But he said it anyway. He spoke with authority. He spoke as a herald on behalf of the king, and his words effected the judgment of the rich and powerful, whether they knew it or not. Many people think 
that James is doing the same thing here. I think it's probably both and more than that. I, I think James is speaking as a prophet and a pastor. He is speaking about evil in general, and he is also addressing the change that should be expected within the hearts and lives of those who take hold of the gospel. However much wealth you have, James is saying, as you come to Christ, you will begin to relate to that wealth in very different ways. I think that's the point here. The first thing he says is that you won't hoard your wealth if you are a true Christian. You'll want to get it immediately out into the field. J. Alec Machir says usefully here, we should always put a priority on the use of possessions. Following our Lord's own teaching about so using our resources as to heap up treasure in heaven. Luke 12, 32 to 34. A real Christian has an eternal perspective. And a real Christian is thus characterized by urgency. James says that the unbelieving rich have been storing up treasure on the last day. What an incredibly foolish thing to do. All that money in your bank account will only serve as evidence against you on the day of judgment. You can't take it with you. And if you die with it in your account, it will be summoned as Exhibit A at your trial. Therefore, why not put it in the field? Why not do something of kingdom value with it? Well, of course you would, if you truly believed. Real faith changes the way we use our money. That's what James is saying here. Verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. If verses 1 to 3 are condemning hoarding as entirely out of step with the behavior expected of real Christians, then these verses are condemning fraud and self-indulgence as equally inappropriate. A real Christian treats his employees fairly and justly, and a real Christian is extraordinarily careful with his or her own purchases. He is well aware that one doesn't want to be fat on judgment day, metaphorically speaking, but probably literally speaking as well. One wants it clear that the majority of one's resources were always deployed in pursuit of kingdom gain, not personal comfort and luxury. A real Christian doesn't want to be like the dumb beast in the stall. The cow thinks himself quite fortunate to be eating so well and is, of course, completely unaware that he is merely being fattened for the slaughter. Don't be like that, James says. Put your resources in the field. And be aware, too, that it is very often the love of money that causes people to abandon whatever little faith they may have. That's the likely meaning of verse 6. It seems clearly a reference to the Lord Jesus. Machir takes it as such and says, We must have it constantly before our minds that it was love of money 
that betrayed the Lord Jesus. Of course, he's referring there to Judas. It was certainly the case with Judas that the love of money caused him to betray the Lord. And we must be careful lest the same thing one day be said of us. Wealth is a very dangerous thing. And a real believer understands that and conducts him or herself accordingly. Verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Here the emphasis is on waiting and waiting well. Faith, of course, has a great deal to do with waiting in both the Old and New Testaments. Abraham and Sarah come immediately to mind. There was a long delay between when the promises were made and when the blessings were received. And it was trusting God through that delay that was received as faith. Well, so it is in the New Testament as well. Faith is essentially trusting and obeying God through long delay. To illustrate how we ought to conduct ourselves during such delays, James makes use of a common agricultural metaphor. The farmer knows what it is to wait, and the farmer knows what it is to depend on things that are well outside of his control. The farmer does what lies within his power to do. He sows and plows and weeds and waits for the early and latter rains. That, of course, is a reference to Deuteronomy eleven fourteen, which says, He will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. There was an amount of rain required soon after planting, and then another rain was needed just before ripening. If those rains didn't come, then the harvest would be ruined. And, of course, there was nothing the farmer could do but trust the Lord. Well, James is saying here that it is much the same with us. We need to do what lies within our power, and then we must wait on the Lord to do the rest. Now, of course, there are some who see something more than a general principle here. There are some who see here a word of prophecy, or at least a word of potentiality. They say that just as there was a great and powerful outpouring of the Spirit to get the church started shortly after it was planted, so too there will be a great and powerful outpouring of the Spirit just prior to our ripening, which would itself be just prior to the return of the Lord. Well, that may well be. I'm not sure that the text is predicting that, but I also see no reason to rule it out. There have been many special outpourings of the Spirit, many great revivals in the history of the church, and I would long to see another such, a greater such even, in our day. Lord, make it so. Either way, we find ourselves in a waiting game, much like the humble farmer. But James has a further word of encouragement for us. He says in verse 10, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. These verses seem to imply that while we wait, we must be prepared to suffer the displeasure of the world. 
Whenever you speak the truth of the Lord, you can expect to encounter the hostility of the world. The prophets certainly did, and we will have to be prepared to do so as well. I love what Sam Albury says here. He notes that it is possible for Western Christians especially to feel as though comfort and life going well are normal and that hardship, expected or otherwise, is abnormal or even a sign that something must be wrong in our Christian lives. But the Bible nowhere leads us to have such an expectation. Indeed, it is full of examples to the contrary. Suffering of one kind or another is normal for the people of God. It is not a sign that things have gone wrong, but that they've gone normal, closed quote. I suspect that we are about to return to a state of normalcy in North America in the very near future, and so we are likely to find this counsel from James to be very helpful. Verse 12, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, many people in the more recent past have understood these verses as forbidding the taking of legal vows or oaths in the court of law, but I don't think that's what James is aiming at here at all. Of course, Jesus gave testimony under oath in Matthew 26, so it would be strange for James to be condemning that here. No, far more likely is that James is rebuking that tendency of the Jews in those days to surround and buttress every promise or commitment with varying layers of solemn and binding oaths. The Jews had developed quite a system, quite a tradition, particularly in the conduct of business and trade, whereby certain promises could be broken while others could not. If you swore by this or that, well, those promises were not serious and and could be easily broken. But if you swore by this over here, well, then... Such an oath was binding. Foolish people continue to do this sort of thing today. They'll say, I swear on my mother's grave, or I swear on my child's life that I will do such and such a thing. What madness and irreverence. And what unintended disclosure. Does that mean that all the times you gave your word without swearing on your mother's grave, you intended to break that word as soon as it suited you? Ridiculous, James says. A follower of Jesus should be trusted to keep their word in all circumstances. When we say yes, let it be yes. When we say no, let it be no. There's no need for anything more than that. Verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. What Sam Albury said above could just as well be said again here. It is entirely normal for Christians to be sick. It is entirely normal for Christians to suffer. We live in a fallen world. Our bodies are fading and passing away waiting to be restored and renewed at the last day. So in the meantime, Christians get cancer at about the same rate as their unbelieving neighbors. The Christian death rate currently sits pretty close to 100%. This isn't a sign that something is wrong. This is 
normal. Matthew Henry says helpfully here, Our condition in this world is various, and our wisdom is to submit to its being so, and to behave as becomes us, both in prosperity and under affliction. That's what James is concerned with here, telling Christians how to conduct themselves in various circumstances. If you're cheerful, if everything is going great, sing songs of praise. Be grateful. If you're suffering, pray. If you're sick, call for the elders of the church. Henry, again, is helpful here. He says, it lies upon sick people as a duty to send for ministers and to desire their assistance and their prayers. It is the duty of ministers to pray over the sick when thus desired and called for. I think that's absolutely true and very helpful to say. If you are sick, then you need to call for the elders to come and pray for you. It isn't their responsibility to intuit somehow that you are sick. If you are sick, then you need to let them know. More than that, you need to ask for them to come and pray with you. Calling and asking is part of how we are humbled and positioned to receive grace and help from God. It wouldn't do you any good for the elders to come and pray for you if you were not in a position of humility, need, and dependence. So let God put you there. Go through the processes that put you there. Humble yourself, call, and ask for help. We should probably notice, too, that the emphasis in the text is on prayer. There's only one imperative, one command in that clause, and it is for the elders to pray. The word anointing is a participle, which means that it, it simply amplifies the main verb here. The text is saying, pray, and as part of doing that, anoint with oil. The oil is a feature, not the focus. Most commentators doubt whether this has anything to do with the potential medicinal qualities of oil, which I am not interested in debating. The oil seems to serve to make the prayer tangible. It becomes a lasting reminder of the prayers and concerns of God's people. In verse 15, James says that the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. What does that mean? Well, of course, it couldn't mean that everyone who receives prayer will be healed and will live forever. James will have seen too many people get sick and too many people stay sick and too many people die for him to be saying that. The key is to read verses 15 and 16 together. James seems to have in mind certain cases where the sickness is related to sin. Listen to what he says. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The person who is sick will be saved and the person who confesses sin will be healed. That is the opposite of what we would expect. We would expect him to say that the person who is sick will be healed and the person who confesses sin will be saved. But it it doesn't say that. And that leads us to understand that James is speaking about a situation where the sickness is related to unconfessed sin. Now, of course, not all sickness is related to sin. John 9, 1-3 reminds us of that. But some is. Jesus said to the lame man that he had healed by the pool of Bethesda, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Apparently, that man's sickness 
was related in some way to his sin. Jesus, of course, can see such things, but we can't. Therefore, James advises us, as a matter of course, to confess our sins when we are sick so that if our sickness is related to a sin that we've been persisting in, we may be saved and potentially healed as well. If you pray in repentance and faith, you will certainly be saved and you may be healed. When you read the verses together and carefully, it becomes clear what James is actually saying. Verse 16 goes on to say, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Elijah was not a superhuman or a demigod, James says. He was just a man who prayed. Well, so can it be with us. Prayer is the great power of the Christian church. If if we are in Christ, then we have intimate access to the God of heaven and earth, and we should use that power far more often than we do. Finally, James says in verse 19, My brothers... If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. James wrote this, of course, at a time when several heresies were making their way through the early church. At about this time, Paul was writing Galatians to ward off the heresy of the Judaizers. A short while later, James's brother Jude would write his epistle warding off the heresy of antinomianism. The apostle John was confronting an early form of the heresy that eventually became known as docetism. There was a lot of real and substantial error floating around in the early church, and so James ends by calling on the church to watch out for one another. Notice that he doesn't say, there'll be people who drift towards error. Be sure to ridicule them and revile them and to push them all the way out into full-blown heresy. No, he doesn't say that. Thanks be to God, he doesn't say that. He says, bring them in. Put your arm around them. Talk, listen, correct, encourage. Because whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will save his soul from death and will cover over a multitude of sins. James B. Adamson says here, The church is a redemptive brotherhood. Through its efforts, the wandering brother can be restored, turned from error back to righteousness. Thanks be to God. Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on our Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into your search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right-hand corner. Once again, that's intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word.